stand up for the scripture reading for this Sunday. And the portion of scripture is from 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. I repeat, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them with which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. Amen. You can remain standing for just a moment. You know, sometimes as a pastor and Anna Faith, that you got your parents to sing with you. That was a blessing. So take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our series in Timothy, Living Out Love in the Local Church. And it is important. The local church is so important to us, isn't it? Many of you have been here for many years at Heritage. And I, I want to say I thank I thank you, church, for your love that you have for me, my family, my wife, my children. I have three children and my grandchildren. I have four grandchildren and one foster grandson as well through my, my middle son, Brian. <clears throat> but as I prepared this message today, I have to say 40 years of my life flashed before me. So I just want to read one verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, and share from my heart this message. I've entitled, The Man on a Mission. Speaking of a bishop, a pastor of a church. Can you read it with me together? 1 Timothy chapter 3, why don't we all read it together? Verse 1. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And in that verse, he gives two conditions for a pastor. And then from that verse down to verse 7, there are 18, I counted 18 total conditions or qualifications for a pastor. And so this is a very important passage, as I said, for all of us, because, you know, a lot of people make their decisions on what church to go to based on the pastor, based on the message they hear. So obviously a pastor is very important, but he's only one man in the church. But he is a man who needs your prayers. And I know that you do pray for me and my family, and we appreciate that very much. So let's pray together as we begin this message today. Now, Lord, we ask for your help and your wisdom as we talk about the pastor's qualifications from your word, God. And we thank you that when, it's, when your word speaks about the offices of the local church, that your word is a sufficient authority for us to go by. 
And we don't need to look at the writings of the church fathers, although we respect those men. But Lord, Your Word is the final word on how we are to govern our local church, God, because this is Your church. And we thank You that Your Word is given by inspiration. And we thank You so much for this passage and others that speak about this mighty office of a pastor, of a bishop, or of an elder. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so like 40 years of my life seem to pass before me, as I said. And I, I, am, I still stand before you with, with fear and trembling. And I shrink in amazement at the privilege of being a pastor I still remember the very first morning back in 1984 when I woke up and we were going to start City View Baptist Church in Brooklyn. And there I am. You could see how I have hardly aged at all. And I woke up that morning and I, I swept the floors. We were meeting in a Seventh-day Adventist church and I had to sweep the floors and set up the chairs. And I was one young, young excited 24-year-old man back in that day. And as I've been a pastor now for this many years, I'm still trying to preach the best sermon that I'll ever preach because I still work at it. Every week I say, Lord, I want this message to be the best message I'll ever preach. That's, that's my heart that I have for this, this ministry because I believe it's a very privileged opportunity every time to preach the Word of God. I realize my frailties are great and my failures are many and my, my shortcomings are, are glaring. My, blonde, my blind, blind spots are evident to you all, much more to you than to me. But I do seek the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And I want Jesus Christ to be the one that we love. You know, it's a blessing being a pastor. And I thought about this. From the day I left Bible college, I, I had worked out an itinerary where we were going to hit the road and raise support. I never got another job from that day till today. I've only lived on what God's people have given to us. I've never made any demands. When I go and preach somewhere, I make no demands, obviously. And I've never made any demands of this church as far as what this church would pay. But my needs have been supplied since from, from May of 1981 till, till today by God's people. My, my wife did work as a bank teller for a very brief amount of time. But other than that, she's been a stay-at-home mom and my income has been entirely through the work of the Gospel. And so I praise God for that. And that's my, that's my testimony of praise to God. So here we are at Heritage Baptist Church. Now for 26 years. So let's look at this passage of Scripture. The outline is in your notes today. And the first thing I want us to notice from the outline is there are two offices in the New Testament local church. And these two offices are pastors and deacons. And they're given in this passage of Scripture... Where in verse 1 he says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. And then down in verse 8 he says, likewise must the deacons be great. So here's a pastoral epistle. This is a letter specifically written for this very purpose of laying the foundation for the offices of a church. And there are two. 
pastors and deacons. And the other verse to corroborate that is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Can you read it with me? It says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And so there again, Paul mentions these two offices to the church of Philippi. And so this passage of 1 Timothy, however, is the most comprehensive New Testament passage that tells us of the non-negotiable offices of the local church. And there are two offices. That's what Baptist churches believe. There are two offices because the Bible teaches and the two offices are pastors and deacons. Now, our church has two pastors, myself and Pastor Carmine. And we have a, 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 a ministry that Micah fulfills, what we call the ministry assistant to the pastor. Did I say that correct? I don't even know what this is. We made a complicated title for Micah. But what a blessing Micah is. And I will also have a few pictures of Micah on our screen today, as well as Pastor Carmine, because Micah is fulfilling a pastoral role in our church, not officially a pastor, but as an assistant to me and to the, to the pastoral ministry, he's very much functioning in a pastoral role. And as I looked at that picture of, of Pastor Carmine and I, I thought, wow, we are growing old in this church. <laughs> but we have given the very best years of our life to this church. We've given the years of our strength by the grace of God to this church. So, a few things about, just as I introduce this passage of Scripture. Christians are admonished to do these things to the leaders of their church. What does this say that Christians ought to do to the leaders? It says they should know and esteem them which labor among you. We beseech you, brethren, to know them, he says, which labor among you or over you in the Lord and admonish you. That's encourage you and to esteem them. That's to count them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So I say to you, don't avoid the pastors. It says get to know them and consider them and esteem them, count them and appreciate them. The second thing we could say about the, the work of the pastors is remember and follow them which lead you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Can we read that verse? It says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So you should have pastors. You deserve to have a pastor, dear church, that you could Follow the faith of your pastors. We want to live in such a way that we live faith and we want you to walk in that faith as well. So it says, remember them. That's call them to mind. By the way, the word follow, we get our word mimic from that original language word. Even the word mimeograph, right? A mimeograph is a copy of the original. And so it's saying follow, mimic the faith of your pastors. That's a great responsibility, Believe me, that's a weighty, weighty task that we have. We need your prayers. And then Hebrews 13 also says, not just know and esteem them, not just remember and follow them, but obey and submit yourselves to them. And so we don't take this lightly. I'm not an authoritarian person saying, follow me, do what I say, you know. If the Word of God says to do something, I will say, do it. I don't, I don't tell you to do my personal opinions. As Even today, I said, pray about them. 
pray about what God would have you to do on certain things. But this verse does say, obey them that have the rule over you. That is, obey us as we're obeying Jesus Christ. Obey us as we're telling you the Word of God. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. That's my job. My job is to care for your soul and to watch out for you. Because I'm going to give an account. It says, they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy, not with grief. It's unprofitable to you. Now, we do have a membership in our church. You know why we have a membership? I want to know who I'm to give account for. Ultimately, now if you're not a member and you're visiting here on a regular basis, I love you. I care for you. I feel like I I can be your pastor as well. But membership is when a a member commits himself to to the doctrinal stand of our church. And then, in that sense, you're committing yourself to this church. I... I have a special account over your life to care for you, to love you, to pray for you, and to encourage you in the Lord. So it says, obey them and submit to those which lead you. So those are a few introductory things. Let's let's now get into our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as I mentioned, there are 18 qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The first qualification is what? What does it say? In verse 1, who is it, what's the first qualification of a pastor? He has to be a what? A man. That's the first qualification. This is a man. <laughs> and that is a man, not a woman. And we, we emphasized that last week. So it says if a man. And then here's the second qualification. He has to have a desire. A man must have a desire for this good work. And so the way I put it here is a man must have a thirst for this office. That is a man on a mission. A man with a thirst for this office. And notice in this verse, it says desire twice. It says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And you know me, I love to look up words. I encourage you often to go to Blue Letter Bible. And if you go to Blue Letter Bible, you'll find out there's actually two different Greek words behind those two words, desire. One means to, to literally... By the way, you know what I love being a pastor? You get to take part in the most important moments in people's lives. Like wedding days. Here's Ian and Claire. I'm so glad you guys could be here today. I was going to show this picture anyway. But because uh, you look so handsome that day and beautiful, Claire, on your wedding day. And then this was Major and Lillian... Uh, uh, Colon Sellers, they we, I did their ceremony at in Central Park, and it was such a beautiful day, and and others as well. But being a pastor is a, it says even in this passage it says he desires a good work. So a pastor must have the thirst for this work because it is a good work, it's a privileged work, it's a difficult work at times, but it's a noble work. It's a, it's a work. It's a good work. It's a continuous work. I'll tell you, being a pastor, it's like continuous. There's really not a day off that you, you, you can take when you're a pastor because you're, you have to live this ministry. It's a multifaceted work. This is a good work. It's, it's a work that's focused on the Word of God. Spending time in the Word of God and prayer. It's a work that focuses on people. It's people-centered. Because I'm pastoring a pastor pastors people. Thank God for the people. If there were no people, I would have no work. 
in that sense. And, and yet it's, emphasized, it's, it's focused on God. So it's people-centered, but it's God-focused as well. It's a good work. And it's a work that, that I get to help people from birth till death. You know, the pastor's there in the, in the hospital when the baby's born. And the pastor's there in the, in the hospital when a loved one dies. And all in between at the high points and the low points of life. The pastor does this good work. And so there must be a thirst for it. And these words desire. Desire. The first word means literally to stretch yourself out for this work. Stretch yourself out, and that word is used of Abraham desiring a heavenly country. So as Abraham thirsted for heaven, so he says a pastor should desire this work. And then the other word is that literally it's used for coveting and lusting after things. Both of these words are actually used in a negative way and a positive way. You could desire the right things or the wrong things. But sometimes God puts the holy desire of this good work in a man and He says, desire this work in a covetous and even a a spiritually holy lust. If you will, because that's the word. It's it's used and translated that way. of, of, Of lust. But it's also used of the angels who desire to look into the truth of redemption. That's the kind of desire a pastor should have. Of looking into the truth of God's Word and caring for the flock of God. It's a work that the best man, I think, can only do with much frailty and failure. But he desires a good work. You know, when, when I was saved, and here's, here's my, a brief testimony, I was saved as a freshman college and and Clemson in 1978. You've probably heard that. And then I, I, I went home. They told me about a church to go to in Manhattan. So I started going uptown to a church called Manhattan Bible Church up on 205th Street. And, and as I started going there, there was a lot of young people in the church. The pastor had been saved out of drugs and rock and roll, and I connected with that because that was like my background. And I started getting involved in the church. I remember they had a sign. And on the sign it said, Thursday night soul winning. I was like, that sounds scary. (laughs) Soul winning. What is, and I said to somebody in the church, I was like, what is that? He says, oh, we go and pass out gospel tracts in the park. I said, wow, I sure don't want to do that, you know? And so, but then I got involved and one of the the youth pastors said, hey, why don't you come out soul winning with us? I was like, (laughs) you know? And so I went out soul winning with him and I said, I don't know what to say. I'll just listen to you. So he went up to somebody, he started talking to somebody, and, and after that, then he turned to me, he says, okay, now it's your turn. I was like, huh, what, my turn? So I went up to somebody, I offered him a track, I was like, here's this gospel track. And he said, I don't want it. I said, okay, now it's your turn, that was it, that was it, that was it. But, uh, but God started working in my heart. And I remember when I was a kid, and I was in the ninth grade in my liberal church that I grew up in, I, it was the only time in my life I got interested in like going to church. Because so I didn't really like going to church very much as, growing up. But I was going through the confirmation class, and they had a young pastor, and so I showed a little more interest than usual. And my mother said to me, my mom, my dear mom said to me, said, Matthew, maybe one day you'd like to be a pastor. I was like, what? What am I going to say? 
I will run out of something, things to say after three weeks. There's no way I could ever be a pastor, you know. And I ran from that idea. So far, I became an atheist. So after I became saved, I remembered that conversation. And I thought, maybe I should be a pastor. You know, that, that actually came to my mind. My mother's, what my mother said to me, even when I wasn't saved. So that summer, I was at this Manhattan Bible church, and they had an evangelist there. And I remember going to church that, that night. It was a weekday night, a revival meeting. And I said, Lord, I believe you want to, me to do something for you in my life. And I put my hand on the steering wheel. I said, I, I believe, Lord, you may want me to preach. And I went to the church that night, and the invitation was given for full-time Christian service. This is what anyone who wants to give your life to the Lord for full-time Christian service, come forward. And he did one stanza, and then another stanza. And I, I was still sitting there, but he, and he was like, somebody needs to come forward. I sense that the Lord is working. And, so, and I finally did come forward. And, and I, I told the church, I believe God's calling me to preach. This was in the summer of 1978. And you know, from that day till this day, I've never doubted that God has called me to preach. You say, well, you don't preach very good. Well, I, I do the best I can. You know, I, and I will tell you that. I do the best I can every, every chance I get. I, and I say that in all, in all honesty. I remember one time I was in, um, I was in Bible college. And the class, it was, a, it was a graduate class. It was in grad school. And the professor was talking about the call to the ministry. And I was like, we're in grad school. We're studying for the ministry. That's what, it was a, a pastoral program for people in grad school. And I was like, why is he talking to us about being called to the ministry? Surely everybody in this class knows that, right? So I, I turned to one of the other's classmates. I said, why is he talking about being called to ministry? Doesn't everybody in this class know that? And he said, I don't. I was like, oh, oh that's why I saw it. <laughs> But I realized, yeah, not everybody had it so clear as I did. So I thank God for that. I had a desire. Now, there's three words in the New Testament that are used interchangeably that refer to the same office. Now, we believe this is what the Bible teaches. But this is also distinctive Baptist doctrine, if you will. But Baptist doctrine, we, we seek to get our doctrine from the Bible and not from, not from church tradition. So there are three different words that are used in the New Testament that refer to the same office. The first word is the word given here in our English text. It says, if a man desired the office of a bishop. And I put the Greek word there because it's a picture. It, it tells a picture of what a bishop is to do because this word focuses on the duty the work, the duty of the work of a pastor is he is a bishop or an overseer and the word is episkopos. Epi is a preposition over and scope is to scope it out. You know, look over. And that's why the word bishop is sometimes translated in our English Bible in, as overseer. And so I want you to go to Rome, uh, Acts chapter 20. And I'm going to, we're going to look up a few verses in each of these points. Acts chapter 20 and verse uh, 17. 
I want us, us to see how these terms, like bishop and overseer, along with elder and pastor, are used interchangeably. And it's important that we see this from the Bible, because this is what we practice in our church with these offices. So notice in verse 17, what, is the, what, are the, what position of, of leader is called in Acts chapter 20, verse 17? What does it say there? You can just talk to me. The, the elders. He calls for the elders of the church. Now go down, please, to verse 28. And he's talking to the elders that he's called together. They're called elders in verse 17. But now read verse 28 with me. Acts 20, 28 says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to over all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. That's the word episkopos. It's the same word bishop in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So he tells the elders that they are what? Bishops. So we see elder and bishop are used for the same office. And then he tells them in verse 28 as well, after overseer, what does he tell them to do? There's a verb there. To do what? To feed. And literally, that's the verb form for pastor. To pastor, feed, like a shepherd would feed the church of God. That's what a pastor means. A pastor means a shepherd. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And so the duty of a pastor is many. But of course... A key part of our duty is to preach the Gospel, win souls, and baptize those who follow Jesus Christ. As a Baptist church, we believe that biblical baptism is the immersion of a believer into the water. And so that's what we do at Heritage. And there's Sister Joy Prophet when she was baptized. And our dear brother Bernardo sitting right there who was baptized a summer ago or to do the work of, of children. And there's so many different ways, so di- many different ways to exercise our responsibility. Okay, so the first word is bishop or overseer. That focuses on the duty of the work. The second word is the word pastor. And this word focuses on one's devotion to the work. Because a pastor has a heart for his sheep. A pastor knows his sheep and loves his sheep. And so the idea of a pastor is a devotion to the work. Now here, I want us to stick right here in Acts chapter 20 and look again at that verse 28. And I mentioned, as he tells the elders to, who are bishops, to feed the church of God. And that is to pastor them and to have devotion to them. And this word, pastor, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 is used clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, for these different gifted offices for the, local, for the local church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where it says, And He gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And we're going to see that being a teacher is a very distinctive call to a pastor. Devotion. What a blessing to be able to visit families when they have little, little kitties. And uh, Debbie and Ian, of course, that's when they had uh, Phoebe. And so I was able to visit with them briefly in the hospital. What a blessing to pastor people through 
such moments in their life. Or to have dedications of those babies. We love to do baby dedications. And here's a baby dedication we did for Will and Tricia uh, with proud grandpa and grandma, uh, brother Vinny, uh, when they were dedicating. I think that was for the youngest one, uh, Lucas, when they dedicated him. And you know this other picture over there? You know who we were dedicating that day? JJ. AZ wasn't even born. You see Joshua, uh, 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 Caleb, and Chara, who, who are now like, they're, they're not here today, but they're like this tall. And so there we are with the lions. And you talk about pastoring people. I, I remember sitting in a diner doing marriage counseling with Leon and Latia so many years ago. Devotion to the work. The third word that I want us to, to look at, not only the word episkopos and the word pastor or shepherd, episkopos emphasizes the duty of the work, pastor the devotion to the work, but the third word is this word elder. And we read it already here, but I want us to go please to Titus chapter number 1. If we could go to Titus chapter 1. This is the other pastoral epistle. Of course, the pastoral epistles are what? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They're often called pastoral epistles. Not that Timothy and Titus, you could argue that they were not actually pastors, but they were really apostolic representatives to the church to appoint pastors to the church because of false teaching and certain problems that had entered into the church. But... Look at at Titus, please, in chapter 1, and look at verse 5, where Paul, writing to Titus, says, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain, who? Ordain what? Elders. You notice that word, elders, in every city, as I had appointed thee. And then he gives similar qualifications to what we'll see in Timothy. He says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. And now look at verse 7. What does he say? For a bishop then must be blameless. So that's our same word in Timothy. So the elder is used interchangeably with bishop. Now here's what happened in church history. Bishop in church history, because they started reading the church fathers, they thought that a bishop was one man over many churches in one city. In other words, like a bishop would oversee many, many pastors or elders. And that a bishop was looked at as a a higher office than the elders. But here we see this is not the way it is in the Bible. I say let's just stick with the Scripture because the Scripture is, is it enough for us? Is it all we need to do this work Yes, we believe that, that the Bible is sufficient and it's the inspired Word of God. Now, we could get benefit from reading the Church Fathers. I've read the Church Fathers. I've read uh, Ignatius and Polycarp and, and Irenaeus and, and uh, Tertullian. And, and I, I enjoy reading that, those men, but they're not inspired writers. They're not writing the Word of God. We have to remember that. By the way, this is Pastor Carmine visiting... Our dear Consuelo. Many of you visited Consuelo. And not just the pastor gets this blessing. Many of you love, we all love Consuelo, didn't we? God called her home this past year. And there we are at her funeral as well. 
This word elder emphasizes the dignity of the work. I want us to go also to 1 Peter chapter 5 here. And then we'll continue this. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 5. So who is Peter writing to in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1? Who is he writing to? He's writing to the elders. He says, the elders which are among you. And who are elders? They're the pastors. Or we could say they are the bishops. Either way. Because these words are used interchangeably. Elder, by the way, means a bearded one. And notice that word. Notice the Greek word. I put it there because you'll be familiar with it. What is, what's the Greek word? Press buteros. Sounds like? Presbyterian. So the Presbyterian denomination gets its very denominational name from this term of elder because the Presbyterian church does have elders separate from the, the head pastor of the church. So that's how they're structured. We believe that an elder is the same office of a pastor or, a, or of the bishop. Of course, a, a large church can have multiple pastors and can have many elders, if you will, but there's the same office emphasizing the dignity of the work. First Peter chapter 5, so he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory which shall be revealed. Now, I like how Peter says that, because Peter was an apostle. Peter could say, I'm an apostle. He could have like used this weight of authority. He says, no, I'm writing to you elders. I'm, I'm one of you. And he definitely doesn't say, I'm the Pope. And I'm over you. Peter doesn't put himself over them. He puts himself side by side with them. And look what he says in verse 2. Could you read 1 Peter 5, 2 with me? It says, feed the flock of God. That word feed, again, is that word pastor. It's to show devotion to the flock of God. Taking the oversight. That's the verb form for being a bishop. An overseer. Be an overseer. So he tells the elders to do the work of a pastor, and to do the work of a bishop, to oversee. So all three terms are used right here by Peter. They're not three different offices. It's the same office where the pastor is the elder. He's the mature one because of the dignity of the office. He's the pastor. He should have a devotion for the work. And he should take the oversight. That's the duty. And he says, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. No pastor should preach because of financial gain. Neither is being lords over God's heritage. No, no pastor should take the authority over God's people as if he were God himself. No, a pastor, I'm just one of you. I'm just a man like you. We all need prayer. We all need grace but being an example to the flock. And Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. That's what it says in verse 4. What a beautiful passage. Speaking of God's leaders in the church. So, this is what we believe. These three words are used interchangeably to refer to the same office. Now, quickly, let's move. We're going to just hit this as quickly as possible. The second thing we see is that a pastor must be a man with a testimony. Not just a man with a thirst for the ministry but a man with a testimony. 
he must fulfill these different responsibilities. So I said there were 18 responsibilities in all. Verse 1 had the first two. He has to be a man. He has to have a desire. But now there's 16 other responsibilities that follow. And I've kind of tried to summarize them. But in 1 Timothy, if you look there, in verse number 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, what is the first qualification of a pastor that he gives here in verse number 2 of a bishop? A bishop then must be blameless. Now, this word blameless, I believe, is the overarching characteristic of all the other character traits that follow. So this is the virtue that is implied in every other word. He has to be blameless. And the idea of blameless here, and I have it on the screen, I have it in your notes, is that he has to be above reproach. So that no one can point a finger of accusation and lay a, a hand on his character and injure his reputation. For example, one of the qualifications of a pastor, as you go down in the text, it says he is not to be a striker in verse 3. Not to be a striker. And also, kind of similar to that, he's not to be a brawler. Where does it say that? It says that, uh, yeah, also in verse 3, not a brawler. Yeah, no striker, not a brawler. So what if after church you see me in the back there and, and you trigger me and I say, man, let's duke it out right here. And, and I start, I'm like punching the guy out in the, you know what I just did? I just disqualified myself. If I did that one time, have you ever seen me do that? No, thankfully. I, I'm, the only time I ever hit anybody is before I was saved. It was in high school, and I was a gym monitor, and one of, the, one of those kids that I was supposedly monitoring got me so upset, I just hauled out and hit him, and I broke, broke a, 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 my knuckle in my pinky right here. I broke it. And later on, we ran track together, and we became friends. But that's the only person I ever hit. Not a brawler. Not an adulterer. Not greedy, a filthy lucre. In other words, if a pastor, if, if I committed adultery as a pastor, I'm disqualified. I don't believe I should ever be a pastor again. Now, I could be forgiven, but forgiveness is different than being placed back into a ministry with these important qualifications so that nobody could lay a hand on on me and, that's, and injure the reputation of me, but even more importantly, the reputation of this church and the reputation of Jesus Christ. The pastor must be blameless. So every virtue is implied in this word blameless. It is an overarching characteristic. So the way we could look about this, we could say that these different characteristics refer to one's personal life, And here, Pastor Carmine and I, we went to Haiti, and we were building a brick home with Brother Vinny and Jeff and others. How many of you went to Haiti with us? A number of you, I know, are here. Went to, oh, we are the, the whistler himself, David Lopez. David was whistling somewhere. He wasn't in this picture. But uh, what a blessing David was. He was actually doing the work while we were taking pictures, right? I mean, David worked hard, man. He was, he was actually our expert. He knew what he was doing. I, the only thing I knew how to do was mix the cement. I mean, you know, mix the cement, because any, anybody could do that one. 
but the idea of a pastor in his personal life. And what I did in your notes, if you look in your notes, and we're, that's on page number, page 10, the bottom of page 10, and I, 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 there is some overlap in, in categorizing these. I'm not saying that, that only these characteristics relate to one's personal life, but I tried to kind of summarize what I thought characteristics that relate to a personal life. And blameless is the first one in each of these different areas. But he has to be vigilant, that is temperate and watchful. He's to be sober, that is self-controlled. He is to be of good behavior. We looked at that last week for the women. They're to be modest and have a well-ordered life. And so must the pastor be modest and have a well-ordered life of good behavior. Not a striker, not quick-tempered. Not greedy, patient, gentle, not covetous. Titus also adds, not self-willed, not soon angry, just, holy, and temperate. A pastor must be a man who takes responsibility and who lives a holy life personally. And then in his family life, some of these characteristics relate to the family. He is to be blameless. And here is one of the most important qualifications. Because right after blameless... In verse number 2, it says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. <clears throat> Literally, a one-woman man. A pastor must have the heart to be with one woman, if that's how God has so led. Other areas, he rules his own house. His children are in subjection. And next week we'll talk about our deacons, but here's one of our deacons years ago. Edgar has served in, in our church. I remember when I first met Edgar and Anna. Look at how, how young that Edgar was. We're both getting gray a little bit. But, and then his girls are grown up, and my kids have grown up. Those are my three children, by the way. That's Rachel and Brian and Daniel Young. And that's uh, Edgar and Anna. And that's uh, Janina Standing and Shannon being held by Anna. But I remember the first time I ever asked Edgar and Anna if they would do our snack table. And everything I've ever asked Edgar to do, he said, you okay, Pastor? That's what you'd like for me to do. I would like to do it. And I asked Edgar, would you like to be a deacon one day? Yes, Pastor, I would like to be a deacon. You know, He's always compliant, such a servant of God, both he and Anna. And now, of course, they're leading our marriage ministry class, which we encourage you to be involved with. So a pastor must have a, his family life in order. I want to make a comment about this matter of being the husband of one wife because there are different views of this. And good people can disagree about what exactly it means to be the husband of one wife. Some say it could be a prohibition against polygamy. And that's possible because there was some polygamy in certain cultures around the world, and maybe even in this culture to a certain extent. I'm not sure how much. But obviously, a pastor cannot have multiple wives. Okay? <laughs> That's basic. We could all agree to that, right? <laughs> but, you know, I remember when we went to Japan a few years ago, the missionary even told us that it was common in that culture for men to have their wife at home, through whom they have children, and then they meet other women, and there's one of those hotels where they meet, and he would point these different hotels at. And there was a statement by one of the poets and philosophers of this day, of the first century, by Demosthenes, and he said this, he said, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, 
but wives to bear us legitimate children. Okay, not a pastor. A pastor must be a one-woman man. Some would take this to mean that if there's ever any divorce in a man's life, at any time in his life, and there's good people who hold to this, and I'm not going to dispute this, but this is a common view, and it's probably the most commonly held view amongst Baptist churches that I'm even familiar with, okay? Uh, is that if there's ever been any divorce in a man's life, he cannot ever serve as a pastor or as a deacon. And that's a safe rule to have. It's a safe position to take. But I really struggle with that because, here's, here's why I struggle with it. Could a pastor, could a man serving as a pastor now, before he was saved, could he have been a drunkard in the past and be forgiven and now serve as a pastor? Could a man who struggled with being a brawler in the past, could he be forgiven and now serve as a pastor? Could a man in the past who wasn't a good teacher, but now he's a teacher, could, could he now be a pastor? And any of these qualifications... I believe whatever, whatever that qualification is, I believe it relates to a man's life at least since after he was saved. Because when a person is saved, they're a new creation in Jesus Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. These qualifications, I don't believe, say anything about a person's pre-Christian life. And so I do believe we can have deacons who have been divorced in the past. And we do actually have had deacons who have been divorced in the past. Now, I'm not condoning divorce in any way either. Divorce is something very hateful to God. But all of us do things in our past life that are hateful to God. And I don't see that divorce, though, forever disqualifies a person from changing their character and becoming a one-woman man. That's the condition of a pastor. He's to be a one-woman man. So, the way I look at it this way, what if a man, before he was saved even, got divorced? And then he becomes saved. He marries a beautiful Christian gal. And... Ten years later, they have, they have a few children, and God calls them to preach. And he's shown that he's a one-woman man. That's his character. I believe he could be forgiven, and I believe he could serve as a pastor because he has shown by his character that he is a one-woman man. So I believe that God changes our character, and he changes us from the inside out. And then, and then I thought about it this way too, and I don't want to like, keep going on this for so long, but it's probably the most controversy of all the, the qualifications here. What if a man didn't get married, but he shacks up with women, one woman, two women? What if he has a, a child with the one woman, he doesn't get married, he finds another girlfriend, shacks up with her for a while, has another child, and then what if, what if that person, but they, he never legally gets married to anyone? And then he gets saved. He was never married to anyone. He was never divorced. But he might have had multiple children through multiple girlfriends. That happens in this world, doesn't it? Does God forgive us for our past life? Does God, can God change a man to become a one-woman man? 
Now, would that person be disqualified from being a pastor? Because he had never gotten divorced. So you see what I'm saying is I think there's these issues. It's just more than being divorced. Or what if somebody lived in in other sexual sins even? What if they lived in homosexuality in the past? They were never legally married, but they engaged in a past life of homosexuality. Is that person forever forbidden to being a pastor? I say no. God can change every one of our hearts to say, if I ever get married, I will be a one-woman man. By the way, this passage does not demand a pastor be married. But that once a pastor gets married, he will be a one-woman man. And if you say it demands for a pastor to be married, then it would also demand that he have children and at least more than one child. So I, I don't believe that that would be a qualification that a pastor have to have that you have to wait till you have one child or two children. Okay, so in his family life, he's to be blameless. In his social life, he's to be blameless and of good behavior, have a modest and well-ordered life, given to hospitality, not given to wine. By the way, I, I don't drink. I've never drank since uh, 1978. I had my last beer, and I'm, I'm so thankful that I've never drank. Since then, I'm so thankful that I, I poured my marijuana down the toilet. I still remember flushing the toilet. I could still see it go, Vroom, bye-bye, bye-bye, pot. And then I, I still remember the last beer I had. It was at Clemson University. I said, I'm never going to do that anymore. Just don't need it. Not given to wine, no striker, not a brawler, of good report. In his social life. And then in his spiritual life. Apt to teach, not a novice. He loves the Word of God in prayer, holding fast the faithful Word. He's able with sound doctrine to convince the gainsayers, it says in Titus. So those are different things about the pastor's testimony. In his personal life, his family life, his social life, his spiritual life. And then number three, a man who can teach the Word. Now, this qualification right at the end of verse 2 is to me one of the most distinctive aspects of the pastor's qualification that sets him apart from a deacon. It's not incumbent for a deacon to be apt to teach. Although Stephen and Philip were deacons who could really preach. But here it says a pastor must be apt to teach. What does that mean? He must know the Bible. There are important doctrines to understand and to be able to explain. And there are different, difficult issues for a church to face. And a pastor must know the Bible and know how to do his best to navigate through those issues without caving in to the pressure of, of culture and society. Apt to teach. And the verse here is Titus chapter 1, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Gainsayers are those who contradict the word of God, who speak against the Bible. Are there people like that? <laughs> who speak against the Bible? Ah, the Bible, that's not true. There's a lot of gainsayers speaking against the Bible, what it teaches about creation, about our genders, about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about our salvation. All kinds of people will disagree with us and we must try to teach them 
and take our stand on the Word of God, speaking the truth in love. And the last thing we'll say here is uh, teaching the Word, uh, edifying the saints, evangelizing the lost. Uh, just a, a quick picture there. And then the last thing is a man who is trained in the Word. Verses 6 and 7. So go to, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and look at these last two verses, verse 6 and 7. And here he says, not a novice. That is, he is to be a mature believer among God's people. Why? It says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride. And the idea there is he will be lifted up and he will be like in the cloud land of self-deceit. He will be filled with his own sense of importance as a novice. That is a young believer, one recently converted, should not be a pastor. A pastor is to be a mature believer. That's the idea of an elder, a mature person, a bearded one, if you will. He says, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, my understanding of that is that a pastor, he, if he is filled up with pride, he will fall into the same trap that the devil fell into. The devil fell through pride. Now look at verse number 7. It says, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. That is, a pastor must have a good reputation amongst those who are not saved. Now think of that. Do we care what the world thinks about us? Yes, we do care to a certain extent. Now, we're not going to change our doctrine to satisfy them, but what if the pastor of our church is a brawler? What if the pastor of our church, what if the pastor of the church is out drinking Saturday night and the people in the community know that the pastor of the church is a adulterer or he's a drunkard and then he comes and he stands before you? What kind of, of a disgrace will that be to you? It will be terrible. They say, oh, you, look at you people. Look at the pastor you have. You should be ashamed. He's a disgrace. What kind of a man is that, you see? So, in that sense, a pastor must have a good reputation amongst those who are not saved. And notice what he says here. He says, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, whereas the condemnation of the devil, I believe, speaks about the same judgment that the devil himself will receive, because of his pride, this passage is saying that Satan will love to set a trap for a church to destroy, in a sense, the reputation of this church in this community and this city. What's one of the easiest ways for the reputation of this church to be destroyed and hurt? Is for the pastor to mess up. And it's a scary thing. Believe me, one of my prayers through the years, you know what it is, Lord? Keep me off the front page of the New York Post. Because <laughs> I know if I'm ever, if you ever see my mugshot on the, front, on, the, on the New York Post, it won't be a good thing. <laughs> and you might not think that the New York City cares about our church, but if I messed up, they, they would take interest. People take interest in people's sins, don't they? So we don't want the name of Jesus Christ to fall in disgrace. Satan does have a trap for pastors to fall into. And it could be any one of these areas that we've talked about. 
And so a pastor does need your prayer. But also, the pastor is accountable to the church. I am accountable. I cannot, just because I'm the pastor, I don't do whatever I want to do. I'm accountable to you. And we're accountable to each other in the local church. So, beloved, amen? God is good. And it's a blessing. I tell you what, it's one of the honors of my life to serve the Lord as a pastor. Pray for me. I pray for you. Love Jesus with all your heart. Follow Him, please Him, and bring Him glory. Let's stand together as we pray. A man on a mission. Pray that God would continue to give revival to the hearts of the pastors of our church, to Pastor Carmine and to Brother Micah and myself. Pray that God would give us a a, a real sense of mission in our church. Pray that God would give us a sense of desire to fulfill these responsibilities, to have a thirst for this work, to maintain our testimony in this work, to teach the Word of God, and to be trained and to grow in our training of the Word, to be examples of the flock. We're not here to lord over anyone. We're here to to set an example for you to follow, to follow our faith. Pray that God would help us to live in such a way that we would be worthy of this call. So Lord, we thank You, we love You, and we praise You. And Lord, maybe there's someone even here today who'd say, I believe God's calling me to be a pastor. Lord, is there anyone like that? Touch their hearts. Dear God, I do pray that You'll give us Your grace. We don't want to live in any kind of way that would cause any disgrace to Your name, but only that people would know of Your grace through us, the grace of Jesus Christ, that Your salvation is so wonderful and You give us power to love You and live for You. We thank You, Lord. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And who would say, Pastor Matt, pray for me as you spoke today about a pastor with a thirst for the work. Maybe God has given you a desire. I don't know your heart, but has God spoken to your heart to be a pastor? Let me see your hand today. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. Anyone else? You know what? Sometimes deacons can grow into becoming pastors. Maybe there's deacon here. God has touched your heart to serve as a pastor. So Lord, work mightily and use us here. And for those who raise your hand, if you want the church to pray for you, just step out right now. If you'd like for us to pray for you, you raise your hand, would you step out right now? Okay. Uh, Micah, could you... God bless you. Please work now, Lord. Glorify your name. And we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.